Welcome to Season 4 of Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad, I'm an Associate Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics, and I'm a practicing hemonk doc here at UCSF. If you like this podcast, follow us on Twitter, email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com, and you can back us at patreon.com. And with that, let's start the show. All right, I'm back in plenary session, virtual edition. I'm joined by Bill Hall. Bill is an associate professor of radiation oncology at Medical College Wisconsin in my favorite city, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Bill, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me back. Excited to be here. We're going to talk about your new paper. Let me give listeners the title. It's called Value of Neoadjuvant Radiation Therapy in the Management of Pancreatic Adenocarcinoma. It's under the comments and controversies section in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, and I think listeners will put a link to it. Uh, in our show notes, and listeners will love to check it out. It is a provocative paper, and so it's going to give us a lot to talk about. But before we before we were we were just talking a minute before, and you were saying um, since we wrote our thing about space OAR, uh, you have been checking out the podcast, and you want to take me to task. Is that right? Bill? Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say that I've I've really enjoyed the podcast, and and when I was first a guest on the podcast, I had not really been listening to it ever before. To be perfectly honest with you. <laughs> And then, uh, <laughs> and then I, I did the podcast and, uh, yeah, it was a little bit of a gamble. I was like, all right, let's do this. Um, and then I, I started listening to it after that. And, uh, you know, I did the, bo- I did the podcast and since then I've, I've been listening to it relatively frequent frequently. And as I was just giving you a little bit of a hard time before we started here with, with you doing the hashtag no COVID, I feel like it's become sort of hashtag COVID a little bit. <laughs> um, <laughs> Just to be fair, um, I'm sure that you get a lot of attention and uh, and a lot of requests to do COVID stuff, but um, but yeah, it's 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 a little bit of a little bit of a departure. Yes, it's it has always been a balancing act. I was trying very hard to you know not do it at all, but then we got hit by the Delta wave and everyone went um, panicked. And I guess I only feel compelled to talk about it if I feel like the broader narrative is not in line with my own thinking. And then I feel like, okay, I'll do an episode to kind of advance what I think is right. Um, but you're right. I want to get back to my bread and butter. Oncology is my favorite topic, of course. And, you know, of course, we're biased because we spend all day doing it in our day jobs. And so naturally, it's of, of interest. Um, I hope to have some good episodes coming in oncology. I got Bernie Marini coming back. I got uh, some other good guests coming. Um, so hopefully. Wonderful. Yeah, hopefully we're back in business. But this is going to be one of them. This is going to be in the exactly. Yeah. So, um, Bill, you're a radiation oncologist, and like any radiation oncologist, you're looking for more places to add radiation. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) What is radiation appropriate? And um, this is a really interesting essay that you've written that draws together, I think, several lines of evidence, and I'll have you walk us through it. But I guess my thirty thousand foot summary is that. there is this entity, uh, risk, quote unquote, resectable pancreas adenocarcinoma. Um, it is something that we often resect and then we give adjuvant therapy. There has sort of long been a debate in this space about the role of adjuvant radiotherapy. Now the debate has moved to what's the role of adjuvant or neoadjuvant uh, chemoradiotherapy or radiotherapy. And um, you really kind of walk through um, some of the evidence. You talk about what kind of studies we need to yet see. And you want us to keep an open mind that this might be a place, maybe maybe not right this moment, maybe in the future, that we'll actually have some consensus as to uh, how radiation can be delivered to improve overall survival for these patients. Um, I thought it was very interesting, but I, I, how, how would you summarize your 
your paper. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a pretty good summary. Um, you know, I, there's a couple of things I, I kind of want to get to with regard to the 30,000 foot view, and then it'd be great to talk about a few of the, some of the specifics. I think that, you know, it's interesting, like as a radiation oncologist, I feel a little bit conflicted writing an article like this, right? Because it, it's, it's difficult in many ways to advocate for your modality without sounding like your bias, of course. And I, you know, I, I sort of recognize that as a radiation oncologist, especially a GI focused radiation oncologist at a, at a large academic center, I certainly have a strong bias that I think radiation is really helpful. I think it can be really, really effective. And, um, and I recognize that for sure. The, the one thing I really like about radiation oncology and radiation oncologists in general is that we are some of the most critical and scrutinous oncologists that I know, at least the, the circles that I run in. I mean, um, we will, you know, when these types of articles are often handled, you know, whether it's by the journal or, at, you know, at, at uh, steering committees or if you're proposing trials or that sort of thing, frequently the most fierce criticisms that you will receive are from other radiation oncologists. So we certainly, I think, um, have seen that many, many times. Uh, oftentimes it's radiation oncologists that I think that are, are ultra critical of you know, the use of radiation, which is great because, because we should be, and it's, it's a big deal to put someone through a course of radiation as risks, it's expensive, um, it's time consuming, and it, it better help if we're going to recommend it. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, that's, that's an important thing to consider is that um, I certainly am very, very critical of how radiation is used. I, I often don't recommend it. And many times I'll see consults and say, I don't think it's going to be very helpful for you for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, but where I see this this article hopefully fitting in, it's it's a comments and controversies. It was written with the intent of being moderately controversial. It wasn't tried. It wasn't trying to you know really uh, upset the, anything too significant. But it was a little bit controversial. Uh, where I see this is is how are we evaluating the global landscape of clinical trials and existing evidence for patients with pancreatic cancer? And I think this is super appropriate. And timely now it's it's pancreatic cancer awareness month and we as an oncologic discipline i think need to be giving tremendous attention to pancreatic adenocarcinoma uh, for a number of reasons and and what i tried to do in the article is you know again thirty thousand foot view i try to really walk through what are the existing controversies and what do you hear in terms of these sort of soundbite snippet interpretations um, in in the oncologic in the oncologic specialties, and I think we're in a very precarious time. And, and you have highlighted this, you know, many times on your podcast that people need to look at primary data. They need to understand what the existing data shows. They need to understand what the randomized trials show. And we're in a time when people are drawing conclusions. I think largely based on sound bites out of a meeting or you know as a single screenshot that somebody will tweet out and they'll say radiation doesn't work for pancreatic cancer you know that those are the things that that we see from time to time and if, for me as a as not only a radiation oncologist but an oncologist an academic oncologist that studies that, that studies these cancers and runs trials in them and and tries to improve the lives uh, and overall survival of these patients um it's really, really concerning. And that's, that's largely the, the 30,000 foot motivation and context of the article. That is well put. And here's the things I will echo. One, I think I agree with you. 
that radiation oncologists are very good critics of the literature. And I think a few things contribute to that. One, I think uh, we just have to admit that the average radiation oncologist is a pretty smart person. Uh, it is a competitive field and it always gets the very smart people going into the field. That helps, that's good. You know, I, I, I think that's true. The second thing I think helps radiation oncologists be very critical is that in contrast with um, drugs where there are so many different companies and they all wanna push their own products, with radiation oncology, they're just, and this is also something why, you know, people sometimes lament that we don't have enough randomized control trials, although you, you've done a great job with the, you know, the RTOG groups, um, but there's not that commercial push. So radiation oncologists are often more neutral about um, the different uh, trial arms. They, there isn't a company that makes the product in one arm pushing that, you know, that arm, uh, although that happens sometimes. And, you know, we took them to task in a little bit in the space, the OAR, OAR stuff. Um, yeah. But I think those contribute. And then I think radiation oncologists are generally sort of critical people. Um, and you're right. I have never uh, felt like uh, radiation oncologists, I think the ones I work with are superb and they always do a good job of sort of giving people the right sort of risk benefit profile. Um, this question is an interesting question, radiation and pancreas cancer. And I think many people, the reason why we have this re preconceived bias is a randomized control trial in the New England Journal in 2004. And you know, this the two by two factorial chemo, chemo radiotherapy arm done by the Europeans. Um, in that study, of course, the chemotherapy part had a survival benefit. Uh, the, the addition of radiotherapy was either neutral or perhaps a decrement. Um, but your point in your essay is that we've come a long way from 2004 and there's just a lot of other studies. Um, I wonder if you might talk about that seminal 2004 study and how you view it now. This is the European study group for pancreas sure, cancer. Sure, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think first of all, the most important thing that we, we should distinguish is whether we're talking about adjuvant radiation or neoadjuvant radiation. Um, so, you know, the, the study that, referring, that you're referring to, you know, the SPEC study is, is a historic study. It's, it's relatively well known. Um, but I want to be perfectly honest with you, I almost discount it in the sense that um, it doesn't contribute a lot to my clinical management. I, I actually don't think that adjuvant therapy, we can talk about, well, I'd like to talk about this in detail, but I don't think that adjuvant therapy is a very effective modality for pancreatic cancer. I, and, and I think that that's obviously highly controversial, um, but for a number of reasons, I just don't think these therapies should be primarily given in the adjuvant setting. That includes radiation therapy for sure. Um, if you were to ask me, you know, do I think adjuvant radiotherapy is of benefit? I don't know. And we have a, an RTOG trial that will answer that, um, that Karen Goodman has led, uh, 0848. And that will be, that will be out in the next couple, couple of years. Now, challenge with that trial is that the chemotherapy is probably going to be looked at as, as antiquated because it's gemcitabine based chemotherapy. And many people are now advocating for fulfurinox, but the broader question is, is there, you know, is there a role for adjuvant, primarily adjuvant therapy? And should that therapy be given neoadjuvantly? And my, my answer is really, um, I actually don't think that adjuvant radiotherapy, it, it very well may not be very helpful. And that, that's quite logical, right? I mean, the patient has been through a big, big surgical resection, they're recovering from surgery, they have lots of small bowel and intestine and, and, you know, healing tissue and anastomoses and, and suture areas in the, in the post-operative uh, surgical bed to then come in and try and, and treat that with radiation is actually a difficult proposition. So I treat a tremendous amount of pancreatic cancer in my clinical practice. I can count, and I've been doing that for about seven years here. 
And um, I can literally count on one hand the number of post-operative adjuvant cases that I've treated. We just that's just not a that's not a routine part of my practice. Um, so I I I would agree with anyone that would say the role of adjuvant radiation is unclear. For sure. Why don't you um, add a little bit? But 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 you're you're critical, and you talk about it in the piece a little bit. There are reasons why you you think neoadjuvant is better just in general yes. for drugs and radiation. So why? Yeah. yeah. So what's that argument? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th this is it's almost this is super controversial, and people argue about this all the time. Um, but it's almost on. I, I don't really understand the argument, to be perfectly honest with you, and and I haven't really understood a coherent argument about this since I've been a resident. I've never really followed why individuals would recommend for or advocate for surgery first in this, in this disease. Um, you know, clearly it may work for some patients, but the reality, it, you know, the facts are the facts when it comes to patients going to surgery first. If you look at the available trials that have taken patients to surgery first, um, you know, whether that's the, the aspect of your four study, the, you know, the produce study, um, you know, you name it, like look at any modern, modern trial that's taken patients to surgery first, the, um, the outcomes are really, really poor. And, and we're looking, when I say poor, I mean, these are the patients with the most favorable stage of pancreatic cancer, right? I mean, what we call resectable pancreatic cancer, which I actually want to talk about that, the naming of it, I think it's an issue, but we call it resectable pancreatic cancer. Um, these are the patients that should be doing the best. They should have the longest overall survival. They should have the best outcomes, they're the earliest stage disease. You know, they're, they're like the, the stage one colon cancer or the, you know, the stage one non-small cell lung cancer. They should do okay. And they don't do very well. And, and that's pretty much uniform across most studies that have taken patients to surgery first. Um, and if you look at, for example, the, the rates of positive margins uh, and the rates of node positivity, the rates of positive margins in this disease are north of 60%, uh, 50 to 60%, depending on how it's defined, uh, for patients that go to surgery first. And you look at the rate of node positivity, it's it's literally like 80% if you look at the SPEC4 study. I mean, and I would I always like to discuss this with medical oncologists specifically, because I would challenge anyone to think of any solid tumor from head to toe in which you would recommend surgery first and say, yep, you're gonna go to a huge operation. Um, with those sorts of outcomes. 80% nodal positivity, yeah. We don't do that anywhere. We don't do that in any other tumors. We don't do that in head and neck cancer, you know, lung cancer, breast cancer. I mean, you name it. We don't, that's just not done. Um, because it's hard. Onerous. This is not, this is a deep, this is a big surgery. It's not- Exactly, yeah. It's not a lumpectomy or a wedge resection. I mean, we're talking about a major, major surgery. Um, so that's first and foremost, like off the bat common sense to me, it doesn't make any sense to do this. Now, um, this there's a lot more nuances to this controversy, and we try to step through them in the article. So the, the nuances really get into the existing randomized data. And this is where I think we, we're running into challenges with regard to how people are interpreting this data. Um, before I touch on that, though, I want to talk about the naming. I also like to challenge people to think of any other tumor that we name it with a management strategy. You know, we don't do that, right? We don't we don't name lung cancers. This is the Pembro tumor. This you know, this is like, whereas pancreatic cancer, uh, we're naming it with a management strategy, which is we're saying that this tumor is resectable, or borderline resectable, and and it's almost like in the setting of a multidisciplinary tumor board, when you describe it, you're also saying 
how the tumor is going to be treated. You know what I mean? And, and that I think is a little bit misleading. Um, it's clearly very, very prognostic, um, but it, it sets patients and multidisciplinary tumor boards up for a management strategy right off the bat. Um, when we know that, for example, within the spectrum of resectable pancreatic cancer, there's just a tremendously heterogeneous outcome pool of those patients in terms of how they're going to do. Um, you know, some of them do really can do okay. It's hard to say really well, but they, they can, you know, they can do, they can do well, uh, in the spectrum of this cancer. And then some of them do, do really, really poorly. So, um, you know, lumping them all together as, as sort of this relatively, crude anatomic distinction um, that also includes a, a management strategy in my, in my mind is um, is suboptimal. Well, let me um, ask you, you know, yeah. Makes you think. I mean, I think what, what you're kind of pointing to, I think that makes this so different is um, both those statistics are quite sobering. If the margin positivity is 50, 60%, that's really not, we, as you say, we don't see that in a lot of other solid tumors. The other point I would make is that, I mean, this is a disease that is almost always microscopically metastatic or, or locally advanced at presentation. You just don't see it. Correct. Uh, and, and, and I guess, you know, um, I guess one question to ask you is like, do you believe the Whipple is curing people? Um, do you believe, you know, and, so and that's a great question. I mean, you, you hear that, you hear that. And I, you know, I, I have such respect for the surgeons that do these operations, you know, and I think at every medical center, they are so widely respected, you know, and they are just tremendously respected. So, you know, you, you often see in, in publications on pancreatic cancer that, you know, the surgery is the, the only curative modality that very well might be true. Um, but, uh, but I think there's more to that story in the sense that you're absolutely right. And there is lots and lots of data to suggest that when patients present with clinical evidence of pancreatic adenocarcinoma, in a very, very high percentage of those cases, you know, probably higher than, you know, 40 to 50%, they have microscopic metastatic disease. And that is borne out by the, the, the patterns of failure in the sense that, a, unfortunately, a huge number of these patients develop distant metastases. So right there, you think, okay, systemic therapy is really, really helpful. Um, you know, it's, it's obvious as well that the tumor itself is tremendously difficult to eradicate. Okay. That, that is without question. It has a, a fortress of a microenvironment that is tremendously immunosuppressive that is very difficult for systemic therapies to penetrate. So it makes sense that you would have to obviously remove that with, with a surgical resection. And that very well, and that has also been demonstrated in multiple retrospective series that patients who undergo surgery clearly do better. But the, the big context of that is the patients who are able to undergo surgery are, are selected, you know, they're, they're, they're biologically selected, they're physically selected and they're anatomically selected. And, and this gets into a lot of the, of the potential issues when it comes to um, looking at neoadjuvant versus post-operative therapy and just purely looking at overall survival across those cohorts. Yes. And I think that's one of the things that you kind of talk about in your piece and you're going to probably walk us through. I mean, there are sort of studies of what happens when people get new adjuvant radiotherapy, um, and you can pick some good examples and walk us through it. But one of the things I think you did a nice job upfront in acknowledging is that, um, you know, these are different cohorts and we're comparing different cohorts. And, you know, it would have been terrific to have sort of a really well done randomized controlled trial. We just don't have it. 
Um, we don't have it in the neoadjuvant space for radiotherapy. I wonder if you might pick some of these cohorts and walk through, you know, what were the observed median survivals and, you know, what did you find? Yeah, yeah for sure. So, you know, I, I think that um, that probably the most well-known example that has really fueled a lot of this controversy of should patients undergo surgery first or or should they undergo neoadjuvant therapy um, has been the, the recent uh, Prodige uh, 24 court trial, which is uh, which is from the French Prodige group. Um, you know, this uh, this was a was a post-operative study um, essentially that looked at patients um, who underwent surgery first, uh, and then they demonstrated that if patients undergo surgery first, uh, in comparing that to patients getting either in the adjuvant setting gemcitabine or fulfurinox-based chemotherapy, that the median overall survival with fulfurinox was was a really impressive over fifty months. You know, it was, it was about fifty-four months. Which is great. Okay, so so taken, and that's that's wonderful for those patients, and and this published in the New England Journal. Um, obviously, a really really prominent, uh, excellent, you know, gr great study that I, I think demonstrated a wonderful median overall survival. But here's the issue. Here's the big. Here's the big issue, is that you can't predict the future when you meet a patient with pancreatic cancer. Okay, and what I mean by that is. If you meet a patient with de novo with a de novo diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, mm -hmm. and you say, "Well, you know, I'd like I'd like to have you undergo surgery first, you simply don't know mm -hmm. if that patient is going to have postoperative complications, if they're going to develop short interval disease progression in the liver or the lungs. You don't know. You simply don't know, um, and that's a big challenge. Now, the advantage that a postoperative study has is they know that." So the patients complete surgery, they present to a medical oncology clinic, they're assessed in the postoperative setting, you know, and they haven't developed a major complication postoperatively, they're out of the hospital, they're evaluated by the medical oncologist, and then they get enrolled in randomized. So that's a very, very different group than patients that are enrolled at the time of diagnosis. And they say, okay, we, you know, you, you have pancreatic cancer, um, anatomically it appears resectable or anatomically it appears borderline resectable. Um, let's, let's enroll you on a clinical trial and let's examine these different interventions and see if they work. I think, you know, testament to that is if you look at the gemcitabine arm of the Prodige trial, which, you know, adjuvant gemcitabine following surgical resection has been tested in a lot of, a lot of clinical trials. Um, and adjuvant gemcitabine uh, or excuse me, neoadjuvant gemcitabine has also been examined. It has been examined in, in in a number of recent clinical trials. Um, if you compare the overall survival of the adjuvant gemcitabine arm in Prodige, uh, you know, to for example uh, the recent SWOG phase two study, uh, the overall survival is is dramatically higher in Prodige. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's almost ten months higher in the gemcitabine arm. In the gemcitabine arm. So, so what does that mean? Does that mean that Gemcitabine is is given at the same dose is much more effective in 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 um, you know the, these patients. Uh, no, it means that those patients were selected. They were selected by the fact that they didn't develop rapid disease recurrence. They didn't develop postoperative complications. So just the switch of neoadjuvant versus adjuvant results in this huge huge difference in overall survival. Um, the other important thing to recognize about the Prodige study is that when you compare the overall survival in the gemcitabine arm to, for example, the overall survival from, there's a German study, the Conco study that also looked at adjuvant gemcitabine. If you compare those two overall survivals, 
of gemcitabine alone. So same, very, very similar patient populations. Mm -hmm. um, the gemcitabine arm of Prodige did much, much better. Okay. So um, that raises a, a couple questions in my mind. Number one, uh, you know, how carefully were these patients that were enrolled in the Prodige trial selected? And what I mean by that is if they were coming into the medical oncology clinics with the potential for consideration for this trial, my suspicion is that the medical oncologists were pretty critical of who they enrolled. You know, they, they knew that the patients were potentially going to be randomized to fulfurinox. Um, they had to be selecting robust performance status patients and robust patients that they felt could tolerate a randomization to fulfurinox. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that that, that, and that was of course the case for the gemcitabine arm as well. If patients were randomized to gemcitabine, they were also, you know, robust fit patients um, that had recovered really well from surgery. So I think that, you know, that's a very important consideration. Um, it's not to, it's not to in any way kind of put down the trial. I think it's, it's wonderful that they did this randomized trial. It's a very, very important study. I think the investigators should be congratulated. It's great, but it shouldn't, it shouldn't fuel a motivation to take patients to surgery first, purely because of this overall survival outcome, which I think there's a lot of caveats to the interpretation of that. Let me, that's really well said. The only points I'll make are, uh, your point is well taken in the sense that in order to enroll in a randomized control trial for Fulfirinox versus gemcitabine, the investigator must believe the patient, if assigned to the Fulfirinox arm, can tolerate Fulfirinox. And that's not a walk in the park. They have to tolerate it after having gone through a Whipple. So that's really quite yeah. a hurdle. Um, okay, that's a great point. The next point I want to push on is what you're really thinking is imagine you're a doctor in clinic and you get a hundred de novo pancreas cancer patients who are non-metastatic, let's just say non-metastatic in your clinic. You're really wondering what's the best treatment strategy. And this trial that people hang their hat on, well, if you're not drinking them, cytamine, it's a great study for somebody who's already completed a Whipple and fit enough for Fulfirinox. It's not the answer right. to the question of what do I do for the hundred people in my door? And I guess I'd be curious, you can take a second to think about of a hundred people, what percent of people make it through a Whipple and are fit enough to get Fulfirinox? That's one point. The only thing I would say about Conco versus Prodige is also that in Conco, the enrollment was, I think, 98 to 04 and Prodige is like 12 to 16. Sure. Difference. It's a fair point. Mm -hmm. So I think there'll be some secular trend in mortality. And there'll also be the imaging issue, which is the imaging from 98 to 04 is kind of blurry. Um, and so there may be some misclassification in that study, people with occult metastatic disease in that study um, or, or something like that. Um, uh, but that's, that's a very good point. Yeah. But, but that's one point. But your point's well taken, though. I mean, yeah. you know, you wouldn't randomize to somebody with 50 percent chance of Fulfirinox if you didn't think they could take Fulfirinox. And to be honest, to take Fulfirinox after a Whipple, you're a pretty hardy person, I think. You're not just somebody yeah. walking in the door. Yeah, no, I, I like the I like the dialogue on this, honestly, Benad, because like I know you've said on the podcast before, you don't like to bring guests on and like argue with them, but I I actually appreciate <laughs> that. Like I want to hear I want to hear like and discuss the points, you know, because I think it's really that's a great point. You're absolutely right. The Conco study was older, imaging is better, um, diagnostic workup is better. You know, I I would bring up a little bit. I don't know how much CTs have really. I mean, maybe CT imaging based assessment of of staging has improved a little bit from the mid two thousands, early two thousands to two thousand and ten. Um, okay, fine, maybe it's improved a little bit. You know, we don't root. I mean, we don't routinely use PET scans. I think PETs are a major leap, a major major leap in staging, and I think that's obviously a huge improvement. I, I do agree with you. Though. There's always the stage migration. 
Um, you know, does the stage migration contribute to it? Uh, seven or eight month median overall survival improvement? May I mean, I, I maybe, um, but I think you know, probably much more telling is the very recent contemporaneous studies that have looked at neoadjuvant gemcitabine versus adjuvant gemcitabine. You know, and just this dramatic difference in overall survival between, for example, the SWOG 1505 study that received neoadjuvant gemcitabine versus the Purdue study that received adjuvant gemcitabine. Um, I think is really testament to the fact that you can get that you get this big leap in overall survival uh, when you enroll when you enroll patients postoperatively. And you're absolutely right. Like if you have a patient that's recovered from a Whipple very successfully, and they're doing great in your clinic, Fulfurinox is a great option. You know, it's a really really great option. Clearly, that's demonstrated by the Purdue trial. The the challenge that I run into and why I so strongly advocate for neoadjuvant therapy and specifically clinical trials, looking at different types of neoadjuvant therapy um, in this in this comments and controversies is that we don't know that, you know, like you say, I mean, you have a hundred patients that come in with, with pancreatic cancer. You just don't know what, what number of the, which of those patients is gonna recover from their Whipple well um, and well enough to, to then, you know, go on to, to receive Fulfurinox. And the problem with focusing on studies that are taking place in the adjuvant setting is that you're leaving meaningful number of, of meaningful numbers of patients behind. You know, the patients that don't recover well and the patients that have a postoperative complication or the patients that develop, um, you know, short interval metastases or disease recurrence after their Whipple, um, they haven't benefited. You know, they haven't been examined. You haven't studied them to understand, um, you know, how can we improve their outcomes and how can we, how can we uh, design a study for that cohort of patients and understand how to optimally um, benefit them? You know, that, that's just, you're just leaving them out, you know, and, and that's, that's not going to move the bar in, in a tumor like pancreatic cancer. Right. No, I, and I, 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 I and I'm not arguing with you because I actually believe your point, <laughs> is true. your point is true in the sense there's a lot of patient selection there. And I actually think it is true. And, and, and I think the comparison of neoadjuvant to adjuvant tells you there's how much selection is there. I guess, I mean, I'm curious if anyone has a sense. I mean, I would say like of a hundred people who present in your clinic, who you think are not metastatic, i.e. Mm-hmm. down this path, I would be surprised if more than 20 or even 10 would be eligible for a trial like Fulfurinox, that random, that adjuvant. Yeah. There's all the delays that come, the sur- you know, they don't do the surgery or they delay to get the surgery. Um, they're all the people who post-op, they don't look good, they're not doing well, they're not candidate. I mean, I, would, I, I don't know the answer, I'm speculating. Yeah. Yeah. Spot, but it, it, I wouldn't be surprised if it's tremendous attrition. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually, um, trying to pull up some slides I gave on this a while back. I, I gave a talk on this um, a while back for a pancreatic cancer symposium right when Pradesh came out. And in that talk, I outlined the number of centers that were enrolling patients into Prodige yes. and the number of years over which it was, the study was conducted oh. and it was very high. And so I, I addressed that exact point to, to ask like, okay, it's not like it was a, you know, a, a four patient or a four site center, you know, it's 80 or centers, a, 500 patients over yeah. four years. Oh, you got it. Okay. You could do some back of the envelope to figure out 80 set, you know, 59 yeah. centers in France and 19 in Canada, uh, five, 500 people over four years. I see what yeah, you're I did the back of the envelope and I, and I don't, the challenge I don't know is how those page, how those accruals were distributed. I don't think they presented it in the, in the publication. Um, but I just, a pure back of the envelope, assuming all the centers accrued equally, I think it came out to like four to five patients per center 
uh, that they enrolled. So we're talking about maybe two or three, maybe at most one to two to three patients per year. Um, that's a very, very kind of crude calculation. Now, lots of caveats there. It could have been that in many of these cooperative group multi-site studies, there's, you know, a small percentage of patients that are a small percentage of centers that are doing the lion's share of the accrual. So that may not hold any water. Um, but, but, but the point is that, you know, I, I do think that there are, there is a potential in that study for unmeasured selection bias. Now, the other point that the, that the sort of the, um, contrarians to this would bring up is that if you look at the pathology and you look at, for example, the percentage of patients that had no positive disease or positive, you know, positive margins on the Purdue study, um, they were pretty well distributed. So it wasn't like they only selected patients with T1 tumors and zero. Um, but, but the issue that I have is that there's all these unmeasured biological confounders, like, you know, performance status and, and, you know, functional status after surgery and, and, and uh, decompensation and tons right. of medicine appear out of nowhere. And that's a huge right. About it. right. Yeah. Right. And so I think we, we don't do a great job of capturing that. You know, you can try to capture Charleston comorbidity index. You can try to capture performance status, but you know, as a, as an oncologist, you meet patients, two patients that may have similar Charleston comorbidity indices, but one of them is really, really struggling and just not, not able to recover and not really doing well. And the other one is, is doing really, really well. They're out walking, they're back to work, what have you, you know? Um, and that's what I think a lot of the issues, is. but I think where we need to be focusing yes. um, to really move the bar and really, really improve outcomes for lots of patients with pancreatic cancer is on the design of neoadjuvant trials. Okay. And, and, you know, we, we sort of start out this comments and controversies by saying, um, you know, there's support growing for neoadjuvant therapy and pancreas cancer for all these reasons that we've been discussing. Um, you know, and it, it's so interesting. So Doug Evans is a major pancreatic surgeon. Uh, he's a chair of surgery here at the Medical College of Wisconsin and is a phenomenal, phenomenal guy. I mean, really, really wonderful. He sort of uh, was one of the pioneers of neoadjuvant therapy back in the early 90s when he was at MD Anderson. Um, as a fellow, he designed a neoadjuvant therapy study and he tells stories about how, you know, people thought it was crazy and that no one thought patients with pancreatic cancer should have neoadjuvant therapy. And, and that has taken a couple, a de couple of decades, but it's, it's starting to change in the sense that now there's clear support growing for neoadjuvant therapy. But one of the things I, I try to highlight in the article is that we have to recognize that there is a, and I, and I, I would say this without a lot of hesitation, there is a dramatic, dramatic paucity of randomized trials evaluating different types of neoadjuvant therapy in this disease. I mean, um, Are there? It, there, what's that? Yeah, can we even, I mean, there's gotta be some phase twos, but I can even- Yeah, there's some phase twos. I mean, there's the SPEC-5 study, which, um, you know, is a, is a small phase two forearm study that I think actually gets at the core of what we need to do, which was we need to take all these different neoadjuvant management strategies. There's you know, there's different types of chemo, there's chemo radiation, there's fractionation schedules of radiation, there is immediate surgery first. I mean, SPEC-5 did this. Now, small phase two, um, they've presented it at ASCO, I think last year. I don't think it's been published as a manuscript, but, um, you know, it's not powered to assess overall survival. It's not, it's not really powered to do cross comparisons. Um, and, but that is that those are the types of studies that I really think we have to be looking at, you know, we have to be thinking about, okay, let's take all these patients and put them into, into robust studies that evaluate 
these different types of neoadjuvant therapy. It, when you look in aggregate at the studies that have compared neoadjuvant therapy of some kind to adjuvant therapy with like an intention to treat analysis, the patients are enrolled at the time of diagnosis. Um, pretty much all of them have demonstrated that there's an overall survival advantage to neoadjuvant therapy. So there's a, you know, there's a, a small study from Korea that um, was a phase two, three study that, that looked at neoadjuvant chemo radiation. That was a tiny study published in the annual of surgery. Um, Jang et al. was the first author. It's reference eight in the uh, in the comments of controversy, but it essentially showed that neoadjuvant chemo radiation with gemcitabine, when compared to upfront surgery, mm-hmm. uh, resulted in an overall survival advantage. I mean, they stopped the trial early, um, and and they reported that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, there's there's some propensity match retrospective studies. Um, and then obviously the, the largest and probably the most well-known study, the pre opank study from the Netherlands um, uh, by Do- Dr. Van Tienhoven and his group over there. In the initial publication did not hit an overall survival advantage, but it was, it was close. And then they updated that result at ASCO um, this past year, uh, which I cite as reference five in the comments of controversies. Uh, that uh, we haven't seen the manuscript, but apparently um, they have now crossed the threshold for an overall survival improvement using neoadjuvant chemo radiation versus surgery first. So I, I think it's, you know, it's, and then there's lots of sort of meta-analyses and retro, other large retrospective database studies that also support this. Um, so I think, in, at least in my mind, neoadjuvant therapy improves overall survival um, for these patients, or at least it, it's trending that way, uh, based on the existing randomized data that we have, um, it's really an issue of how do you give it, and that's where I think we are really struggling. We just don't know the optimal way to give it. And even these studies, I mean, I guess um, um, in order to enroll in preopank, you have to be someone who the doctor thinks can go to surgery right now. So there's still some people being excluded who like we look at and you're like, mm, you know, they're yeah. not for it. right. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, what you're doing right now is I think the first part of your dialogue was you made the case why you feel like the adjuvant data is not the be all end all, which I concede to you. I think there's a, there's some good points there. The next part of your argument is you're making the case why neoadjuvant at least has a very high pretest probability. It's worth investigating. You have multiple, um, you, at least you have a phase two, a small phase two study showing OS benefit. Now you have this study, an updated analysis showing an OS benefit. There's at least a suggestion that uh, OS might be there. And one of your pushes is, you know, you think a very large phase three trial couldn't settle this. You say that one more time. Do I think a large phase three trial could or could not settle this? Could settle it. Could settle it. Yeah, I think it could. I think... Um... You know, I think we do have a phase three trial in the Priopank trial, you know, and, and at least in my mind, yes. if once the Priopank trial is published um, in manuscript form with an updated to showing an overall survival advantage, that to me is, you know, is convincing. That's very, very, very helpful. I guess the question would be, um, do we need to do another phase three trial? And I, I think that's probably a source of controversy. I, I personally would not be this is so controversial because there's a lot of really talented investigators that I work with who are, who would not, who would conflict with me on this, but I personally would not really enthusiastically embrace that trial to be perfectly honest with you, because if you, again, if you, the, the pre-opank people would say that you gave adjuvant gem, you didn't give adjuvant full Firinox. 
Sure, 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 sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think that at, that's a fair point. Um, and there is uh, there is an alliance study that I think will will hopefully address this. That um, I think is either open or, or very close to being open, um, but does not include any radiation. Uh, but but that being said, um, you know, I I think that the 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 reality is the same that at at the core of of surgery first you're going to take a sizable percentage of patients for a very substantial operation that will likely offer them no benefit i mean that's i'm i'm sort of a bottom line type guy and i i like to, i like to think of things as you know this is probably a simplistic way to view things but it's it's a bottom line i mean would I want if would I want someone to go for a major operation that that confers them no benefit when they develop early recurrence or distant metastases? Yeah, you know, I, I guess um, that's a tough sell in my mind. That's a really really tough sell, uh, and I think that um, you know we we have so much evidence Your that you can say OS is the same if if it spares some people's surgery. If, correct. Right. It's it. There's some quality of life benefit there. But Bill, let me let me ask you this question about this issue. Um, what is your current management for somebody who is, for lack of a better term, borderline resectable? The surgeon sure. comes and says, you know, we can't take them to surgery, right? Or I don't want to take them to surgery. It's it's 181 degrees around. Yeah, that, you of know? course. Okay. So yeah, uh, I, I mean, I can yeah, I can go through it for even resectable. You know, so so yeah. first of all, um, you know, we have a trip. We have a tremendous, tremendous. Um, uh, propensity to put these patients on clinical trials. So we have clinical trials, institutional clinical trials for all stages of this disease, um, everything from resectable to completely unresectable. Uh, and, uh, you know, and obviously metastatic as well, but that's a, that's a separate, that's a separate thing. So for, for let's say resectable, or let's say resectable, let's start there. Um, most of these patients would be enrolled in a clinical trial. Uh, we have a couple clinical trials that they will be eligible for. Um, one of the clinical trials looks at two different types of radiation given preoperatively. Uh, it's called the SOFT trial. It stands for SBRT or fractionated therapy. It's a randomized phase two trial that we designed here. I actually designed this um, like six years ago, right out of residency. I went to the ASCO bail course and I wrote this trial and then opened it up here. As, and it's done well, it's done really, really well. Um, and essentially it looks at two different ways of of treating patients with radiation preoperatively. They either get SBRT, they're randomized, they get SBRT or conventionally fractured chemo, fractionated chemo radiation. We've enrolled about 50 patients out of that trial uh, as a single institution. Um, uh, you know, so that's one, one trial that they would potentially be eligible for. That's after neoadjuvant chemo. So they get sort of dealer's choice neoadjuvant chemo. And then if they're ready to go on to surgery and they're gonna get preoperative radiation, they get randomized to one of those two arms um, and the trial has been doing well. We have lots of translational correlative endpoints and lots of stuff built into that trial, quality of life, that sort of stuff. So that's one trial. We also have an adaptive neoadjuvant trial where patients get uh, their chemotherapy changed based on clinical response. So that includes CN99 levels and, um, and imaging and clinical evidence of disease response that's being led by one of our, our um, really, really talented uh, translational surgical oncologists here, Dr. Susan Tsai. Um, and, uh, and a lot of patients go on that study as well. Um, but let's say the patient doesn't want to go on a trial. Let's say the patient says, forget it, I'm not going to do a clinical trial. Um, I would say uh, currently our standard of care uh, as an institution is, is to still do neoadjuvant therapy for resectable and, and borderline resectable cases. And that's, you know, that's largely driven by the surgeons. I mean, this, the surgeons, like at most, 
you know, most high volume pancreatic centers, um, the surgeons are really, really, really influential on the management of these patients. And it tends to be, you know, what the surgeons prefer is, is tends to be the management approach. And the surgeons here, um, strongly, strongly advocate for neoadjuvant therapy, typically, uh, total neoadjuvant where the patients will have chemotherapy. Um, usually we'll start with fulfurinox. Um, sometimes we'll, if the patient's not responding well or tolerating that well, we'll go on to gembraxane, um, and then restage the patient after a certain amount of, of chemotherapy, uh, and then treat the patient with usually conventionally fractionated chemo radiation, uh, tends to be our institutional standard. Um, and then the patient goes on to surgery. That's, that's off study, but the, the vast majority of these patients, we really try to treat on in the setting of a clinical trial. When you do uh, chemo radiotherapy, use GEM as your, as your, as your Yeah, this is again, controversial. When uh, we do use GEM, uh, we, we do, we do use GEM again. It tends to be uh, surgeon, surgeon preferred. Um, there's obviously some small phase two randomized study that would suggest you could use K, that's, that's probably fine. Um, I think the preference has been for GEM-based neoadjuvant chemo radiation, which is, which has largely been uh, what has been what was done uh, by the by the predicate phase two studies, mostly by Dr. Uh, Evans at MD Anderson before he came to uh, MCW, and that tends to be the preference of the group. But you know, the overarching preference is clinical is to enroll the patient on on a clinical trial. You know, so that's which I think is the best way to treat these patients because we're just. You know, it's like many tumors that you just really are not succeeding with standard of care. You you should really be um, looking for a clinical trial option. Yeah, um, that that's that's well put. And I guess I would say that I mean I think um, what this I mean you've answered my question in the sense that it, it brings me to the the point, which was that um, I mean yeah, it's it's the real question, which is for somebody without metastatic disease who's either fully resectable or borderline resectable, what is the better strategy? Chemo, chemo RT, surgery or surgery in those who can get it right away. All those people who, you know, quote, can't get it right away, it would probably be something like chemo, chemo RT. Um, and then hopefully some of them will get to surgery or not. Um, and it's really, you know, um, that's sort of a really core philosophical question here. Um, but as you point out, anytime you look at the results of a randomized adjuvant trial post-surgery in which there was no chemo RT neoadjuvantly given, um, it's just a sliver of the question on one side of the, of the scale, uh, not the whole sort of picture uh, on the other side of the scale. So it's a, um, yeah, well put. Yeah. And, and, you know, we should also mention, um, a, a little bit of the impetus for this study is this, is this really kind of nebulous world or a little bit of the impetus for this article um, was this nebulous world of what kind of radiation should be given preoperatively you know what i mean that's like that's i think a really really big question that a lot of people find difficult to understand and confusing and and part of the the initial inspiration from from this for this uh for this article was the was the presentation of the alliance study um, which, you know, the Alliance is in a really, uh, I'm not very active in the Alliance as a cooperative group. Most of, most of my work in the cooperative groups is through formerly the RTOG and now the NRG oncology cooperative group. But what the Alliance has done a really good job of is just, you know, systematically moving trials forward in pancreas cancer. You know what I mean? I, you can criticize them and I'm not trying to be critical of the Alliance study. Um, and I want to commend them for doing the study in the first place, because it is so important that they've moved these trials forward, but they have done several clinical trials in, in pancreas cancer uh, over the past several years. And, and the impetus for this a little bit was, was the results of the recent Alliance study, um, 
that uh, was presented at, at GI ASCO. We we don't have the the final results of the of the trial in a manuscript form, but we do have the abstract. And essentially, um, it was it was a randomized. Uh, well, it's hard to it's hard to really truly call it a randomized study. It was a two arm study. This was the Alliance A zero two one five zero one study uh, that Matt Katz was the was the PI of and the in the first and presenting author of that was. Um, presented at GI ASCO last year, uh, but essentially it was a two-arm study. They have arm A and arm B, um, and patients were randomly assigned to either arm. The reason I said it's hard to, to describe it as a randomized study, and you're probably better equipped to, to tell me this than I am, but, but they weren't able to cross-compare cr uh, between the two arms. They were essentially just assigned to these two arms, and then those arms were, were sort of benchmarked against a historic control in terms of a a median overall survival that had to be reached, and um, it's not a between you know, the question, comparison, which is the whole. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't. It wasn't a between arm comparison. It was just like let's take fulfurinox again, given neoadjuvantly. Um, you know, let's let's take uh, fulfurinox followed by SBRT, mm -hmm. given neoadjuvantly, and figure out which of these groups is better. And these were patients with borderline resectable. Uh, pancreatic adenocarcinoma. And essentially, they had eight cycles of fulfurinox uh, uh, in the standard fulfurinox arm um, versus seven cycles of fulfurinox followed by SBRT. Now, the challenge with, the radi with radiation, and I think radiation oncologists are really to blame for this, is that we haven't really done a great job of, I think, as, as a specialty. And so I, I sort of shoulder blame for this because I'm an academic rat on that treats pancreas cancer. I think we have not done a great job as a specialty of articulating to our colleagues the really, really profound differences in these in these sorts of modalities. So we use, for example, this term, we're gonna give the patient SBRT. Right. Um, and the reality is that's a very, very different treatment than conventionally fractionated chemoradiation, which has been done historically in multiple studies for pancreatic cancer. So they, they made a little bit of a departure in this Alliance study, the 021501 study, um, to give SBRT in the preoperative setting in sort of a multi-institutional clinical trial in a cooperative group. And I, and that arm closed, it closed early because of futility. Okay. And they had a pre-specified futility boundary that um, essentially there was an interim futility analysis built into the study. And the study was going to close if either of the arms of the, fir the first 30 patients in either arm if less than 37% of those patients underwent an R0 resection. Nice. And they had built in this futility boundary for R0 resection. So the SBRT arm closed early in that study uh, because of futility. And I think, you know, we have to wait and see the manuscript from this and understand exactly what the details were. Um, but that, that was a big, that was a big, um, there's a lot of online sort of chatter about this when, when these results first came out. Again, just stating that radiation didn't work and, right. you know, radiation. Not, that this is a, not you know. an indictment of conventionally fractionated radiation right. Right. modality yeah. and, a different, and a different futility than a between arm comparison futility. It is a futility against a benchmark R0 resection futility, which is a very different thing. Um, yeah. I'm run out of time, but uh, that's an excellent point. So I'm going to direct readers to your paper. I'm going to give you the last word on this. My overall sure. view of your paper is it's very thought provoking. And I entered your paper, I will be honest, my bias entering your paper was the medical oncology bias, which is all these people should get surgery. Uh, no, I don't really think that always, but I do think <laughs> that, that, that adjuvant, we have really cleanly done randomized control trials. That's my bias. Um, yeah. But I ended your paper really 
in, in a real state of equipoise, actually. You got me there. And I'll tell you why you got me there. You got me there because you reminded me that the hurdles to the adjuvant studies, I just concede to you that that's absolutely true. They're just tremendous hurdles. And the studies um, really do exclude a lot of people. And there's the eyeball test of exclusion, which you have alluded to. There's so many centers accruing for four years in France and Canada. That's an eyeball exclusion. Ah, this person's not a Phil Fearnox adjuvant candidate. Uh, that's a powerful exclusion. Um, and so what that means is, I really do think I don't have a great sense of for a hundred people with pancreas cancer walk in my clinic, what is the best path to put them on? And I think um, it very likely would be some test of early microscopic metastatic explosion or spread, which would be some chemotherapy or chemoradiotherapy. Um, and, and really well done studies can sort that out. So I think your paper is really good. It's a solid argument. And I think it will move people's thought process because it moved me. Um, I'll give you the last word, Bill Hall. Sure. Well, th thanks so much for that. That's really kind of you to say. Um, in a way, I was kind of hoping to come on to like a fiery debate about this, but you're, <laughs> you're just saying like, oh, it, you know, so that's nice of you to say that. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, that hopefully the, the goal is really not to say that radiation should be blindly done or that chemotherapy should be blindly done in the neoadjuvant setting, but to say that we don't know the best way to treat these patients. And again, uh, it's Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. Uh, raising awareness on this topic is really, really important to me. And I think the awareness amongst cancer doctors, which are probably the majority of the listeners here, um, has to be focused on the fact that we simply don't know the best way in which these patients should be treated. I personally think it's neoadjuvantly, neo um, but it, my personal opinion doesn't really matter. We have, to be, we have to be doing randomized studies to really truly figure this out. And the only way we're going to meaningfully improve the outcomes for these patients is to do robust, randomized, I think neoadjuvant, but ro regardless of the design, robust, novel, randomized studies um, that can hopefully hopefully test some, some ways to improve, really improve overall survival in, in this cohort of people. Great talking with you, Bill. That's terrific. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.